The following sermon audio. The following sermon audio. The following sermon audio is a presentation of First International Baptist Church of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. Well, once again, good afternoon. How is your prayer life? When I ask that question, of course, I do mean, to some extent, your consistency. I think many of us would have to admit we could be a little bit more consistent with our prayer life. Any amens out there? Thank you. I see that hand. I'm asking also about your frequency. I think some of us would have to agree, you know what, I'm just not praying often enough. Or the time that we spend in prayer, yes, those are also very important questions. How is your prayer life in terms of how much, of your, how much time do you spend in prayer? But I guess I'm really asking the question in terms of what is the content of your prayers? What is it that you bring before the Lord? Because most of us, when we come to the Lord in prayer, it is because we need His divine intervention for some kind of an issue or an area that we are simply incapable of meeting ourselves. And so what does that really tell us about ourselves if we aren't coming to the Lord at all in prayer? That we feel like, well, most of life I can handle fine, thank you. Or perhaps your prayers reveal that you do depend on Him for pretty much everything about your life. It reveals that God is not only interested in your major decisions, but in all of your decisions. Your prayer life perhaps reveals that you need God, even if the situation isn't dire. Or do your, does your prayer life and the things that you bring before Him reveal that, you know, God is only capable of so much, and He only has time for so much, and He's only interested really in so much. So I really don't need to bring all these other things to him. You know, today as we continue our study of the Old Testament, we come upon a very interesting character, a prophet named Elisha. He lived during the time of the kings of Israel and Judah. He was known as a man of God, along with Elijah, not to be confused with Elijah, and other prophets who spoke God's messages to the people and to the kings. And when you look at the book of Chronicles and Kings, you see this huge contrast a contrast between the kings of Israel and Judah who were supposed to be the ones that led people to the Lord and in the ways of the Lord, but instead were leading them away from the Lord. And then you have these men of God, these prophets, among them Elijah and Elisha, who would speak for God and draw his people, draw the Lord's people to himself. And um, you would see him see them doing a, a, a number of miracles and divine signs to prove that, yes, this truly was a man of God, and his message to you is, please return to the Lord, because there is a God in Israel, and it isn't those Baals and Ashtoreths that you have been worshiping. So not only was this a time of people wandering and, and being hard-hearted about uh, and being wayward about uh, their relationship with the Lord, this was also a time of miracles and signs to show that the Lord's prophets were real prophets of His, to show that those prophecies and messages truly were divinely inspired. And what's very typical, if you look at the Scriptures, of those who've been designated the title a man of God, was God was always using them when He wanted to speak to His people. 
God would always respond to their appeal whenever they called upon him, whether it was to send down fire upon a sacrifice or to a curse to destroy a mocker or an enemy or to heal the sick or something else that was supernatural, and that God's acts of divine intervention were often mediated through this man of God, that it was because this particular person asked for this miracle to be done that it was done. Now, if you look at the Bible, you might think, well, miracles are quite common in the Bible. I mean, it is, after all, God and His dealings with His people, and God often um, deals with His people in supernatural events. But if you consider a lot of the time that was in between these miraculous events, you could say that it's not all that frequent at all, because sometimes hundreds of years would pass before you would see some signs. And so they tend to be frequent around particularly godly people in the Bible, Moses and Joshua, Gideon and David, Elijah and Elisha, and of course Jesus, and then Peter and Paul. But think about this relationship between people who are godly, that they call upon the Lord, and that in the Lord's name, miracles are performed and experienced. See, miracles are a work of God, but most often seen as a work in someone or a work through someone that God chooses to work through. That's why when James encourages us to pray for each other, and he says the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective, and then he refers to Elijah as the perfect example. A man of God, when he prays, God does amazing, powerful, and effective things. And so today we're going to look at closely at several of these miracles in the life and ministry of Elisha, for us to be reminded that the Lord God in whom we trust is perfectly capable of far more than the things that we're currently bringing to Him, far more than we could ask or imagine. And I hope it will encourage you in your prayer life. It certainly does me. I love these stories. It reminds me of what God is capable of doing. And I know that if He had done it in the past, that He can do it anytime again. So I ask us today, who will be the godly men or women in our day? Who are going to be the men and women of prayer to see God do amazing things again in our lifetime? Because really there's three things that I think are inseparable. Godly or obedient men and women, prayer, and divine acts of God. They always seem to come together. Godly or obedient men and women, prayer, and divine acts of God. So three things for us to remember about God through a couple of the stories that uh, we'll look at today. And I'm going to assume that you know some of the stories, and maybe some of you are completely new to the story, so I'll try to summarize some of that for you. But in 2 Kings chapter 4, we meet a widow, a widow who had been the wife of a prophet of the Lord. Her husband was known as one who, quote, revered the Lord, but now that he was dead, his creditor was coming. He was coming to cash in on the debts. And so he was coming to take her two boys as his slaves. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 4 to see what Elisha does about the situation. <clears throat> because she cried out to Elisha, and in verse 2 it says, Elisha replied to her, How can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a little oil. Elisha said, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars, and as each is filled, 
put it to one side. She left him and afterwards shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, Bring me another one. But he replied, There is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, Go sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. So she had enough oil not only to fill all of those jars that she had collected from her neighbors, but she had more than enough so that she could then go and sell and pay the creditor and still live on the rest. Reminding us that for God, limited resources are not limited at all. When you pray, remember that God has limitless resources. Let me give you another example in 2 Kings chapter 6. Now, here is a pretty long section, so let me summarize for you what the events in this chapter, beginning in verse 24. But basically, the king of Aram, Aram was an enemy of Israel. The king Ben-Hadad, at this point, had laid siege to the city of Samaria, and he had blocked all travel in and out of the city in an effort to starve its population and then take over the city and gain control of it. And this siege that they had around the city lasted so long that there were food shortages, of course, and the prices for food were sky high. So high that people had even resorted to cannibalism. Yes, cannibalism. And incidentally, uh, let me remind you that the Lord had already warned Israel since the days of Moses that if they, did not, if they were not faithful to the covenant, one of the consequences would be that enemy armies would come and lay siege and they would resort to cannibalism. And it reminds us, too, that God is faithful to His Word. These curses are not empty warnings. He loves His people so much that He corrects their disobedience and their waywardness. And so the pain and the hardships that His people experienced were intended to bring them back to their covenant love relationship with Him. So the king of Israel at the time, Jehoram was his name, he was the son of Ahab and Jezebel. We met Ahab last week, as Alan uh, shared with us. Jehoram places the blame for their predicament on the man of God. He places the blame on Elisha and intends to, uh, and declares that Elisha must be executed. Elisha was elsewhere in his own home, speaking with the elders of Israel, and the king's messengers were sent on their way. Now, Elisha predicted that the king's messengers would arrive, and then he predicted that within 24 hours, the siege would be over, there would be so much food to eat that prices would be bargain basement once again. Now, this royal officer who had come looking for Elisha to have his head, he expressed complete unbelief that something like that could happen in 24 hours, and he said that even if the Lord should make windows in heaven, it wouldn't happen. And Elisha predicted, then it's going to happen, and you won't get to live to see it. Now, that same evening, there were four lepers who sat at the city gate, and they decided, you know what, we're going to die in the, if we stay here. We might as well go into the Aramean camp, because if we die there, we die, but we're going to die here anyway. So they wandered off to the camp, and they discovered that the camp was deserted. Everyone had fled and left everything. Why? Because it says the Lord had caused the army of the Arameans to hear a sound of chariots and a sound of horses, even the sound of a great army. And thinking that the armies of the Hittites and Egyptians had been hired by the Israelites, they fled for their lives. And so what did the lepers do? Well, they began to eat and drink. Wow, look at this. Look at all this food that's here. Look at this silver and gold. And they began to pack it away for themselves until 
their conscience got the better of them. And they said, you know, what we're doing is wrong. We better tell the others. So they went back into the city, and when the king first heard the report, he didn't believe it. He thought, the Arameans, they've gone out away from their camp. They're setting up an ambush, and as soon as the whole city goes out there, then they'll get us. First, he didn't believe it, so he sent out scouts. The report was verified. The people of Samaria rushed out, plundered the Aramean camp, and in fact trampled down the um, officer of the king that uh, didn't believe it could happen. And everything that Elisha had prophesied was fulfilled. Prices were back at the bottom. People had plenty of food to eat, and the Arameans were gone. Now, you would think that when Elisha, the prophet of the Lord, could accurately predict the time of the end of the famine, the prices of the goods, even the fact that the royal officer would not live to witness what he didn't believe, you would think that the king and his people would say, yes, the Lord is God, the Lord is God, of course the Lord is God. But unfortunately, no. They still were disobedient. And so it helps us to understand then that God would need to deal harshly with his people for them to finally understand that the Lord is God. But all of this to say that God is perfectly capable of providing for his people because he has limitless resources. When you pray, do you pray to a God who has limitless resources? Because he can multiply food miraculously with no explanation for how such a little bit of oil could fill that many jars or how five loaves and two fish could feed 5,000 and still leave 12 baskets full left over. But if God can do that, then can't he provide for your needs and mine? If the same God who designed seeds and fruit and trees and pollen and bees and nutrients in the earth could design all of that, couldn't he multiply all of that as well? Absolutely. So sending bread from heaven to be collected on the ground, that's easy. For 40 years in the desert, that's easy for him. That's not a challenge for him. He could speak the earth into being. How could he not provide for you and me what is necessary for us to eat? He can fill a net with fish on one side of the boat, even though the disciples had been fishing all night before and they had caught nothing. It's not complicated for the Lord who could declare, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures, and it was so. So if you and I are faithful to worship the Lord alone and to obey his instructions, to live our lives according to his will and his ways, as he says, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, is there any reason for us to doubt that he will clothe us with the splendor that he clothes the fields or feed us as he does the birds of the air? He will provide for his children as we need, oftentimes through our ability to work and to toil, and sometimes through unconventional, mysterious, and miraculous ways, depending, of course, on the circumstances and what his purposes are in fulfilling how he chooses to reveal his glory. But when you pray, remember that our God has limitless resources. And then comes another exciting story. In chapter 5, if you go back a couple of pages, the story of Naaman. Because Naaman experienced a miracle of God in a very unusual way. Remember the king of Aram. Well, he had a captain of his army called Naaman. And the king considered Naaman a great man. He highly respected him because he was a valiant warrior. He'd been victorious over Israel. But the writer is careful to let us know that the victory of Aram over Israel was because of the Lord. 
Now, Naaman, though he was a captain of an army, he had a disease. He was a leper. Naaman also had a wife, and it happened that his wife had a handmaid. And this handmaid that his wife had was a little Israelite girl. She had been taken captive in one of the previous raids. And it was this Israelite girl who told her mistress about a prophet in Samaria who could cure her master Naaman of his leprosy. So Naaman went to the king of Israel in Samaria. He got approval from the king to go to Israel with letters to the king of Israel and a sizable gift of silver, gold, and clothes. And the king of Israel, Jehoram, son of Ahab, read the letter from the king of Aram that said, I have sent Naaman my servant to you that you may cure him of his leprosy. Well, this shocked the king of Israel. Am I God, he asked, to kill and make alive? Because how was he supposed to cure Naaman of leprosy? And he suspected that the king of Aram was up to something, picking another fight since they'd been at peace. So the king of Israel tore his garments as a sign of anxiety and distress that they did in that time. And apparently, if the king tears his garments, then all of Israel finds out about it because Elisha found out about it. And follow along with me then in chapter 5, verse 8, what happens next. 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 8. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to, to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then, when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored, and he became clean like that of a young boy. And then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Please accept now a gift from your servant. See, God was already at work in Naaman's miracle long before he came asking for it. How did that little girl get there in his household? Remember, it was that captivity. It was a battle that had happened sometime earlier. An event that we would say that was unfair on that little girl. To be captured and taken into enemy hands and have to serve the Arameans. But that little girl was there to let Naaman know that there is a prophet in Israel. And because Naaman heard about the prophet in Israel, he was then cured of his leprosy. Why would the Lord let Israel enemies win over them? Well, because his people and their king needed to be corrected from their unfaithfulness. They persisted in their failure to recognize that the Lord was God in Israel. And you and I may sometimes never understand why God allows some things which seem to be bad to happen to us. But we just have to trust that God is infinitely wise, He is full of love, and even when what we see seems to be bad or evil or inconvenient, that God is still a sovereign God. 
When you pray, remember that God is a sovereign God. God was also choosing to cure Naaman through a miracle that was very different from Naaman's expectations. What was Naaman expecting? The prophet would come out himself personally, declare something in the name of the Lord, and wave a hand over him. But that's not how God chose to perform the miracle. Something as simple as going to wash in the Jordan River seven times. You can imagine the faith of Naaman wondering, okay, six, boy, if I go in, I wonder what's going to happen. Okay, seven. But when we come to the Lord in prayer, to the sovereign God, we have to humble ourselves to receive the miracle that God has planned for us. We should shed any preconceptions and expectations of how and when God will answer our requests. Can you imagine if Naaman, because of his expectations, had gone home? He was already on his way. He would have missed out on his miracle. And notice, too, that God brought glory to himself by making Naaman a faithful believer. Because of his healing, Naaman said, I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. And as God performs his miracles in our life, it is also to reveal his glory so that he gets the praise for what he does. So as we ask for a miracle from God, it must be his glory that we desire, his purposes that we desire to accomplish. Because through his miracles, God demonstrates that he is still sovereign and his plans and purposes are the ones that will be fulfilled. To be sovereign means that he has supreme power and authority. When you pray, do you express a faith in his power that he is able to do more than humanly possible? I hope you do. And do you also, in your prayer, submit to his authority in how he will perform what you are asking for, that you will let him answer your request as he pleases? Because we will see his glory revealed as he demonstrates his sovereign power and his authority over the situation, whether it's disease, a limitation, or an enemy that we have, and he will do it in his way. So when you pray, remember not only that God has, limited, has unlimited resources, but that he is also a sovereign God. One more account that I want to share with you, and again, um, it's a really exciting story. But again, it was king of Aram. He was attempting to make another attack against Israel. But funnily enough, as he planned his attack, he couldn't keep his attack secret because Elisha was told by God exactly what the king of Aram would do, and Elisha would go and tell, send a messenger and tell the king. And the king of Aram was so frustrated, he said, someone's got to be a spy among me. How can the king of Israel know exactly where I wanted to send scouts and put a camp? His counselors were quick to defend themselves. No, no, Lord, my king, Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, he tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. Funnily enough, the king of Aram would hear from his own counselors that the Lord God is sovereign. But in Israel, they didn't believe that. And although the Arameans knew the capabilities of the Lord, the Israelites had had such a hard time believing it. I hope we're not as hard-hearted as the Israelites were, having a hard time believing that the Lord God is sovereign. Well, follow along with me the rest of the story in chapter 6 here, verse 13. Because the king of Aram demands to send for Elisha so that he could remove this unfair advantage that the Israelites had. In chapter 6, verse 13, go find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back, he is in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. 
when the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Can you just imagine the servant of the man of God, the servant of Elisha, looking at him and trying to figure out what, what exactly are you saying? I see all of the enemy's horses around, and you're saying that those who are with us are more than them. Are you out of your mind, or is there something I'm not getting, or what is it? And Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes so he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. As the enemy came down toward him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, Strike these people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. Elisha told them, This is not the road and this is not the city. Follow me and I will lead you to the man you're looking for. And he led them to Samaria. After they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see. Then the Lord opened their eyes and they looked and there they were inside Samaria, right in the hands of the king of Israel. Do not fear. Elisha says to his servant. Why? Because when you have God on your side, the only one who should be fearful is your enemy. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. You know, it doesn't matter if they are more in number. When God is on your side, then more is on your side. One man or one woman of God with God on his or her side is more powerful than any earthly army or spiritual force of evil because God has his heavenly host encamped around those he desires to protect and grant victory to. When you pray, remember that God cannot be defeated. God always wins, period. You may lose a couple of battles, but maybe there's a purpose and plan for those battles. In the end, God always wins. Psalm 27, 1, David writes, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Do you believe that, friends? God is known as the Lord of hosts, which means he has armies of angels, messengers who are ready to fulfill orders and take their next command. That's why David could say to Goliath, you come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. No army can win over the Lord of hosts. <clears throat> it's interesting, too, that, <clears throat> not surprising, <clears throat> excuse me, that the phrase the Lord of hosts, often in our English language translation, becomes, <clears throat> it's a good time, thank you, Jonathan, it's a good time for me to cough here, <clears throat> becomes the Lord Almighty. Psalm 34, 7 reminds us that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. We met a very godly woman by the name of Darlene Rose many years ago in Indonesia. Many of you maybe know her story, but she was a missionary in Papua New Guinea who followed the Lord's calling to go into that area, and she lived before the war broke out. We hear her testimony through a book entitled Evidence Not Seen. Evidence Not Seen. She was a godly woman who lived daily by faith. 
Well, the Japanese had occupied Indonesia and Papua New Guinea in World War II, and so she tells of a time when they were living in the jungle. There were the Bugis people, a fierce people known as the pirates of the islands, and they had recently killed four Dutch people, and they were feared by all of those who were there. Now, you could always tell Bugis people, she says, because of the black sarongs that they wore. Well, one night, because she was cautious of noise, she woke up in the middle of the night, and she thought it was the rats that always plagued them. Apparently, they had huge rats, and they had big problems. And as she opened the door to the hallway, she saw a figure in front of her in the dim light. And she thought it was Dr. Gaffrey, the one male among the six women missionaries that had not been taken by the Japanese. And she thought that this must have been him who had gotten up in the night. Well, now when she realized it was a Bugis man, she grabbed his sarong and threw it over his head, grabbed his machete, and started chasing him out of the house. And she thought to herself, even as she was saying that, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. Because normally she's not a very courageous person. The very next day they managed to get a few materials to, to barricade the doors because the place had been pretty much ransacked. They had been looking for money or other items. And so she managed to reinforce the windows and doors the next day. And they came back night after night. But they never went in the house again. They never tried again to break in. And she shares in her testimony many years later, when she returned to Indonesia and to the area, she asked the Bugis man who had been a boy at the time, a boy named Nomo apparently, asking Nomo, were you one of those who came there in the house that night? And Nomo had to bow his head and admit yes. And he said to her, we came back several nights after that, but you had all those people in white who stood guard around your house and they never dared to go back in again. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. God sometimes does let bad or evil befall his people, but never without a divine plan and purpose. And whatever the enemy, or whoever the enemy be, may be, when you pray, remember that God always wins because God can never be defeated. Now, in addition to the miracles of Elisha, I encourage you to read the rest of the chapters but you see that God suspends the laws of physics. An axe could float. The river could divide. God can make the impure pure. A spring that, whose water was so bad that the land was unfruitful became a pure spring. God could make the infertile fertile. There was a prominent woman of Shunem whose husband was old. She was able to conceive a son late in, in, uh, in her years. God can raise the dead. Um, God can cure diseases. God can make enemies flee. Story after story of what God is able to do through a man of God who prays and asks. Many of the miracles foreshadow the ministry of Jesus. As you read those, you'll recognize, yes, Jesus also multiplied food. Yes, Jesus also had power over wind and rain. Jesus also um, cured diseases, and Jesus also raised the dead. What kind of divine intervention are you in need of today? Is it related to your finances or provision? Is it a struggle against an enemy that's physical or spiritual? Is it someone who has a hardened heart? Is it healing or restoration, whether it's physical or in a relationship? Because what you believe about God and the things he is capable of will inevitably be revealed in your prayer life. And I ask you again, how is your prayer life? What are your prayers filled with? Do you trust 
that God has limitless resources? Do you believe that God is sovereign? And do you believe that God always wins? Let your prayer life reveal that, yes, you believe in miracles and the supernatural works of God and that he performs them through men and women of God to prove that he has the limitless resources, that he is sovereign and that he always wins. One quick closing story before we end here. Because we had, I was just working on this sermon and trying to finish it up yesterday when we were outside trying to put our fall leaves into the forest and gathering all those things around the yard. And my son had the bright idea of taking his grandfather's uh, tractor and the trailer hitch that's on there and filling those up with leaves and driving them into the forest. So he unhitched the trailer and uh, dumped all the leaves in the forest. And then when he turned around, he realized what happened to the pin that's supposed to keep the trailer on the tractor. Well, that had fallen into the forest floor and under all of these leaves, of course. And so we were looking, and I don't know how many minutes passed, we looked and looked and looked, couldn't find it, and I'm thinking about this story, and what do I bring to the Lord in prayer? Would this be something that I should bring to the Lord in prayer? What if I express this prayer and it doesn't show up? So that went on for a few minutes in my head before I finally said, well, God knows where the pin is, Maybe we should ask him, Lord, help us find this pin. And I kid you not, it did not take even 10 seconds. Oh, here it is. I kid you not. What do you bring before the Lord in prayer? Let's pray. This has been a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. To listen to more sermon podcasts, Or to learn more about FIBC, please visit www.fibc.dk or facebook.com forward slash FIBC CPH. Thank you for listening.